Hello and welcome to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. This is the latest episode in my series on the First World War. Hopefully you listened to episode 32, The First World War, colon, Whose Fault Was It? Where I have uh, pretty much decided I'm going to tackle this huge question and I'm just dragging you along for the ride. Tackling the question of who's to blame for the First World War. And I'm going to stay away from things like causes, you know, the acronym MAIN, militarism, alliances, imperialism, nationalism. And I'm going to stay away from blaming it on specific individuals, although some uh, important individuals who have a lot of responsibility in this crisis will pop up here and there. But I wanted to look at countries. And I mentioned in the previous episode how I think you can make a really strong argument for either Germany, Russia, Austria-Hungary, or Serbia. And right off the bat, I'd like to establish that most historians would agree with the idea that there was no one country that was entirely to blame for the war. It's not as clear, it's not as cut and dried as it was in the Second World War. So, this episode will deal with Germany, the German Empire, Kaiser Wilhelm II. We're going to be looking at the case for Germany being at fault for starting the First World War. I'd like to start with a quote from Dr. Annika Mombauer from the Open University, which is uh, just northwest of London, I believe. And she said the following, quote, Whole libraries have been filled with the riddle of 1914. Was the war an accident or design? Inevitable or planned? Caused by sleepwalkers or arsonists? End quote. And I find that really, really interesting because as you dig into this topic, sometimes you feel like these people, these decision makers, upon whom, you know, the fate of millions would depend, just kind of bumbled their way into this war. And that's kind of the, the sleepwalker view, the sleepwalker thesis. But uh, but then other times you find that there were these influential people, like the right person at the right place at the right time. These are people that were agitating for war. And they saw this crisis in the Balkans as a golden opportunity to be like, all right, like finally we're going to make things happen. So let's talk about Germany. I have another quote <clears throat> that I'd like to share, again, from Dr. Annika Mombauer. Now, this is from the online encyclopedia of the First World War. Uh, she published an article there uh, outlining the, the outbreak of war in the summer of 1914. And let's talk about how the decision makers in Germany felt about this crisis in the Balkans. Now we're talking about the conflict between Austria-Hungary and Serbia over the assassination of the uh, heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, Franz Ferdinand, and possible Russian intervention. Now, in her view, the feeling was as follows, quote, in Berlin, they had been encouraged to accept the risk of a European war by Germany's leading military advisors who had 
advocated war the sooner the better on many occasions and who had assured the politicians that Germany stood a good chance of defeating its enemies. Germany's military leaders had been conjuring up the image of a Russia that could still be defeated by Germany at this time, but that in a future would be too strong to be taken on successfully." End quote. Now this is very interesting because a lot of the powerful, powerful decision makers at the very top levels of the German uh, government really had this idea that, well, one, war is inevitable. Uh, you know, France and Russia, who were allied, by the way, and who were on both sides of Germany, were in the process of reforming their militaries, especially Russia. There was these big military reforms. Uh, they had been pummeled about a decade earlier. They, they lost, they were humiliated by Japan, of all places, uh, a country they did not respect. And uh, they lost that war. And uh, there were revolutions that were, you know, the Tsar barely stayed in power and all that stuff. Anyway. Russia was in the middle of this, this big modernization program, and a lot of these German military planners, they had always had this kind of in their back pocket, the back of my uh, back of their mind. They talked about der Tag, the day. So it wasn't a question of if war was going to happen, it was a question of when. <clears throat> and because Germany was surrounded by France and the Russian Empire, and the British had kind of an understanding, especially with the French, the, the idea in Germany was, well, we have to strike preemptively while we still kind of have the best chance of winning. So anyway, I just wanted to set the stage uh, with some of these, these critical quotes so that you can kind of understand maybe the way that the German leaders felt before we take on the task of blaming them for the war. <laughs> One of the biggest things that scholars, historians will talk about when they talk about how the war was Germany's fault is they talk about the blank check. What was the blank check? Well, I mentioned it in the previous episode, but uh, let's go over it again. So again, this Archduke gets killed June 28th, and Austria is kind of debating its options on how to deal with these uh, these provocateurs, uh, these rebellious Serbs and stuff like that. So they kind of wire their allies in Germany. And July 5th and 6th, Austria-Hungary received the blank check from Germany. Um, so, like a blank check, uh, you sign your name, you don't fill in the amount. This was basically a political blank check, where it's like, yep, we're with you, whatever you do. And this was huge. This was huge. Um, there's a British historian called Sir Max Hastings. Uh, he's kind of an old school guy, um, you know, and uh, he wrote the following uh, quote. No one nation deserves all responsibility for the outbreak of war, but Germany seems to me to deserve most. It alone had power to halt the descent to disaster at any time in July 1914 by withdrawing its blank check, which offered support to Austria for its invasion of Serbia." End quote. Definitely, definitely a big deal is this, this idea of the blank check. He also wrote uh, in an article later on, this is from Catastrophe 1914, Europe Goes to War. This was published in 2013 by, again, Max Hastings. Um, he wrote that, quote, on the 6th of July, Kaiser Wilhelm and his 
chancellor gave the Austrians what historians call the blank check, an unqualified promise of German diplomatic and, if necessary, military support for crushing Serbia. This was incredibly reckless. Some modern historians have produced elaborate arguments to deflect blame from Germany for what followed, but it seems to me impossible to escape this undisputed fact. The Kaiser's government endorsed Austria's decision to unleash a Balkan war. This predated everything the Entente allies did. End quote. Now I'd like to talk about the idea that at the very top levels of the German uh, and Austro-Hungarian governments, there were these elite circles of what they call hawks. So in military history, political history, stuff like that, uh, traditionally when you're talking about war, uh, people who tend to be for war are called hawks, and people who are against it are called doves. And I'm going to hit you with some quotes from uh, from some scholars that believe that essentially it was this very small pool of people at the very top levels that agitated for war and uh, thus bear the responsibility for it. This is from Dr. Heather Jones. Uh, she's an associate professor in international history from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Quote, a handful of bellicose political and military decision makers in Austria-Hungary, Germany, and Russia caused World War I. Later on, broader European war ensued because German political and military figures egged on Austria-Hungary, Germany's ally, to attack Serbia. This alarmed Russia, Serbia's supporter, which put its armies on a war footing before all options for peace had been fully exhausted. This frightened Germany into preemptively declaring war on Russia and on Russia's ally France and launching a brutal invasion partly via Belgium, thereby bringing in Britain, a defender of Belgian neutrality and supporter of France, end quote. So you can see, like, she's tracing it all back to, again, these hawks in the German government that just agitated for war. And they took a risk. And the idea of risk is something that comes up time and time and time again with these German politicians, generals, business leaders, and their counterparts in Austria-Hungary, is that they knew the risk. They knew what they were getting into, but they decided to, uh, quote, leap into the dark. Uh, this is a phrase that you see all the time. I think it may actually be from the Guns of August. In any case, there's another professor called John Roll. He is a professor emeritus of history at the University of Sussex. And he, he believes, quote, World War I did not break out by accident or because diplomacy failed. It broke out as the result of a conspiracy between the governments of Imperial Germany and Austria-Hungary to bring about war, albeit in the hope that Britain would stay out, end quote. Now, that's just the first part. So again, calculated risk. Not just a calculated risk of how to deal with France and Russia, but this is uh, something I, I, I wanted to mention, is that a lot of the military calculations in this early stage, the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians were really counting on the fact that the British Empire would stay out of the war. But let's continue. Quote, after 25 years of domination by Kaiser Wilhelm II with his angry, 
autocratic, and militaristic personality, his belief in the clairvoyance of all crowned heads, his disdain for diplomats, and his conviction that his Germanic god had predestined him to lead the country to greatness. The 20 or so men he had appointed to decide the policy of the Reich opted for war in 1914 in what they deemed to be favorable circumstances, end quote. So again, favorable circumstances. That's what I mentioned before. A lot of these people, it's easy to look back now, you know, with modern eyes and be like, no, like this didn't have to happen. Um, and maybe it didn't, you know, but we have the benefit of a hundred years of hindsight. At the time, a lot of these people, they're like, even before we can start a conversation about anything, you need to accept the idea that Germany is trapped and a war is coming. So like, if you accept that as the foundation of any conversation as to what you're going to do with this crisis in the summer of 1914. It's easy to understand a lot of them were just like, no, like war is coming. We have to strike while things are still in our in our favor. Anyway, let's continue. Quote, Germany's military and naval leaders, the predominant influence at court, shared a devil-may-care militarism that held war to be inevitable time to be running out, and, like their Austrian counterparts, believed it would be better to go down fighting than to go on tolerating what they regarded as the humiliating status quo. In the spring of 1914, this small group of men in Berlin decided to make the leap into the dark, which they knew their support for an Austrian attack on Serbia would almost certainly entail. The fine-tuning of the crisis was left to the civilian Chancellor Theobald von Bethmann-Holweg, whose primary aim was to subvert diplomatic intervention in order to bring the war under the most favorable circumstances possible. In particular, he wanted to convince his own people that Germany was under attack and to keep Britain out of the conflict." End quote. So we see here, um, he mentions that predominant influence at court. That's what we're talking about, militarism. Uh, I think that you could definitely make the case that of all the countries involved, kind of the generals, the military establishment just had this disproportionate influence on the civilian government in Germany. And of course, Kaiser Wilhelm did nothing to curtail that, to control his generals or anything like that. But they weren't stupid. They did try to um, kind of camouflage their intentions. And that's something that uh, is not just the opinion of one or two scholars, like I have come across this time and time again, is that civilian leaders in Germany were instructed to kind of make it look like they were trying to de-escalate the crisis, make it look like they were interested in peace, when really they were not. They were like already the generals were looking at the timetables, planning the trains or whatever. Well, the trains had already been planned. Uh, but it's kind of they were working behind the scenes to hit and get the, the biggest bang for your buck if you're going to go to war. If you're going to preemptively de declare war, you know, you're going to stomp into France to get the best conditions possible. So I find that very, very interesting. Sean McMeekin, assistant professor of history at Koch University in Istanbul, said the following, quote, It is human nature to seek simple, satisfying answers, which is why the German war guilt thesis endures today. 
Without Berlin's encouragement of a strong Austro-Hungarian line against Serbia after Sarajevo, the blank check, World War I clearly would not have broken out. So Germany does bear responsibility, end quote. Now, he does qualify that statement immediately after by saying, yes, there was a terrorist plot uh, perpetrated by the Serbs against the Austro-Hungarians. And Russia, uh, you know, there's kind of, they had a little bit of their own equivalent of the blank check. Uh, they got assurances from France, um, stuff like that. But uh, I just wanted to share that. Yeah, Sean McMeekin is uh, maybe one of the newer scholars uh, starting to reinterpret things uh, in a more modern age, like, a, you know, the age we live in, uh, especially because the centennial of the First World War was just a few years ago. And there was a huge burst in just people like renewed scholarship of the Great War. Uh, a lot of, you know, long established historian, scholars, academics uh, taking a look to you know, kind of reevaluate how we look at the Great War. But in any case, there's also Professor Gary Sheffield, the professor of war studies at the University of Wolverhampton uh, in Britain. He said, quote, the war was started by the leaders of Germany and Austria-Hungary. This was done in the full knowledge that Serbia's protector Russia was unlikely to stand by, and this might lead to a general European war. So he's talking about the, the kind of the ultimatum and the conflict between Austria-Hungary and uh, and Serbia. Now he goes on later to say that Germany gave Austria unconditional support in its actions, again, fully aware of the likely consequences. Then he says the response of Russia, France, and later Britain were reactive and defensive. Um, so that's kind of, I don't know if I agree with that 100%, uh, but it, it does make sense, you know, like, the reactions of Russia, France, and Britain came afterwards. And I was actually thinking about this today, you know, again, when people look back and, and, and they think like, oh, like, how could these politicians do X, Y, and Z? At the time, there was no such thing as the United Nations or NATO or, or the World Bank or any kind of these international things. Like, it really was your government. Now, you know, you did have embassies, you had ambassadors and stuff like that. But if you were not actually allied with a country, it was very hard to figure out what the other country was doing. And even if they were telling you what they were doing, like you were never really sure. Actually, a lot of times you couldn't even be sure what your allies were doing, <laughs> like, or if they even were your allies. Like it was, uh, it was very difficult. You know, we look back now and we see France and uh, and Great Britain cooperating in World War One and World War Two. But you know, going into World War One, there still was a lot of mutual suspicion between them because you know they had been rivals, uh, not just in Europe but internationally, like with their empires uh, for centuries. But um, in any case, moving right along, Dr. Catriona Pennell, uh, senior lecturer in history from the University of Exeter, believed the following. Quote, in my opinion, it is the political and diplomatic decision makers in Germany and Austria-Hungary who must carry the responsibility for expanding a localized Balkan conflict into a European and eventually global war. Germany, suffering from something of a younger child complex in the family of European empires, saw an opportunity to reconfigure the balance of power in their favor. 
via an aggressive war of conquest, end quote. Now, I selected this quote because the younger child complex, this kind of feeling of, uh, you know, oh, we're not getting our due and stuff like that. Uh, that didn't just come from the Kaiser. There were a lot of powerful German uh, business, military, uh, civilian leaders that, that felt this way. Um, but I also chose it because uh, it talks about expanding a localized Balkan conflict. Now, I had briefly talked about this in the previous episode. Um, there had been like uh, flashpoint crises between the great powers in the years leading up to the First World War. Like I talked about the first and second Moroccan crises and stuff like that. Like definitely Google it if you're interested for further information. But what I'd like to say is that right before the outbreak of World War One, there had been a series of Balkan wars. Okay, so and and actually, that's one of the reasons why Serbia was so difficult to conquer at the beginning of World War One is because their army was very large, proportional to its population, but they had a lot of battle experience. Anyway, um, so kind of going along with the sleepwalker thesis. It's possible that a lot of the leaders uh, that were making decisions in the summer of 1914 saw this as just another Balkan crisis and maybe didn't take it as seriously as they should have or, oh, it's going to resolve itself uh, the same way that countless other crises have resolved themselves. Like, it's, you know, in the 20 years before the First World War, there had been so many times where the great powers almost went to war. But through mediation and through peace conferences and diplomacy and negotiation, they had figured out a way not to. So I just wanted to mention that. In August of 1914, uh, there was an admiral in the German Navy and a friend of the Kaiser called Georg Alexander Müller, and he wrote in his diary the following, quote, Brilliant mood, the government has succeeded very well in making us appear as the attacked, end quote. Just a little bit earlier, von Moltke, the leading general of the German army, he wrote this uh, July 26, 1914, quote, We shall never again strike as well as we do now with France's and Russia's expansion of their armies incomplete, end quote. So, just trying to, you know, these are guys like at the very top levels of the German government. What's interesting is that uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II and Tsar Nicholas II, uh, you know, okay, so of the German Empire and the Russian Empire, were actually cousins. And I just find this so crazy. There was a telegram exchange between the two of them on July 28th, 1914. So, before the declarations of war of the first week of August, but exactly a month after the Archduke Franz Ferdinand had been assassinated in Sarajevo. To Kaiser Wilhelm II, to try and avoid such a calamity as a European war, I beg you in the name of our old friendship to do what you can to stop your allies from going too far. Signed, Nikki. So this is, you know, from Tsar Nicholas to Kaiser Wilhelm, and he signs it Nikki. And the response to Tsar Nicholas from uh, his cousin was, uh, with regard to the hearty and tender friendship which binds us both from long ago, I am exerting my utmost influence to arrive at a satisfactory understanding with you, your sincere and devoted friend and cousin, Willie. 
so you see like at it's just it blows my mind that these ancestral dynasties these like undeservedly rich people that just have all this power uh you know they're they're trying to maybe stop this conflict but i think all of the people involved again once the switch had been flipped once everything was in motion it kind of got away from them um uh, this is something that that pops up all the time um when you look at you know military strategic thinkers especially in the austro-hungarian empire in vienna this kind of localized balkan conflict this struggle between serbia and austria hungary just pulled everybody in and it ended up being much larger than they expected or imagined like you know when this whole thing started i don't think the german authorities and the austro-hungarian authorities had expected all of this to happen but here's what's important they decided to take the risk anyway um and there were just so many risks involved like it just like so for example you know from the point of view of the german government taking a risk of giving Austria-Hungary the blank check. Then, um, you know, antagonizing Russia and Russia mobilizes, then taking a risk of uh, mobilizing yourself. Then preemptively attacking France, uh, you know, that's taking a huge risk too. And I think the, the biggest one of all was that they had calculated the British would stay out of the war. So they decided to go through neutral Belgium anyway. Um, bringing the British into the war. But I wanted to share this quote. I, I went on a little tangent there, didn't I? Uh, I wanted to share this quote from uh, the Tsar and the Kaiser just to show you kind of, you know, at the very top levels and to get you to ask yourselves, as I've asked myself, like, really, the Kaiser and the Tsar, like, really, how much control did they have? You know, like, these guys were so full of it. Like, yes, I am the glorious leader of this country with this proud tradition of autocracy and everybody listens to me. Um, but sometimes I wonder if like the warmongering cabals in their respective governments, like how much they actually told their czar or their Kaiser or whatever. Um, so definitely if you're interested, uh, you can look into that, that kind of idea that it's, it just, again, it blows my mind that such monumental events would rest on so few shoulders. Like, literally, the fate of millions depended on, perhaps, just a handful of people in each respective capital, you know, like in the in the governments of, of each of these countries. But, um, yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that for now. When the war ended, um, there was an armistice in November of 1918, and eventually the Treaty of Versailles was signed in 1919. There was something in the treaty called the War Guilt Clause, where Germany had to accept responsibility for the war. Like, and this was unusual by the standards of the time. Like, uh, you know, them losing territories, them uh, having to pay reparations, stuff like that, but uh, to also be like forced to admit by the victorious powers that they had indeed started the war just outraged so many Germans, uh, you know, millions of Germans. And when you really look at kind of the interwar period and the rise of the Nazis in Germany and um, the outbreak of World War II, this kind of feeling was 
present in the minds of many, many Germans. Because again, picture yourself uh, as a German at the time, uh, and you've come to believe, uh, rightfully or wrongfully, that Germany is encircled, uh, the enemies of Germany are always plotting against it, they're digging a grave for Germany, and... You know, you didn't actually start this war. It was started by the Austro-Hungarians with their conflict with Serbia, and you just got pulled in, and you fought this war, and then the armistice was signed before any enemy troops were even on German soil, and then, at the end of the war, you are forced to accept the blame for the war, rather than the Austro-Hungarians, or rather than, you know, any of these other people, um, it, it just definitely outraged a lot of them. Now, I'm not, you know, personally saying whether the war guilt clause uh, was right or wrong. Um, I mean, this episode's winding to a close. I, I mean, my personal opinion is yes. Um, the argument that Germany uh, bears the, the majority of the responsibility for starting the First World War, I think is a very strong case. Uh, I think there's a very strong case to be made that just so many things they did uh, from the belligerent foreign policy of Kaiser Wilhelm to his incompetent dismantling of previous political arrangements that had been put in place by Bismarck to prevent this very sort of thing from happening. Um, powerful people in the German government just convincing themselves that war was inevitable. Um, Again, like just obsessed with regional rivals, uh, convinced that Russia eventually was going to become this super, you know, this military superpower and just annihilate Germany. Like all of these things, uh, the blank check, uh, the preemptive invasion of France, the violation of neutral Belgium. Um, you know, initially they asked the Belgians for permission to just march through and the Belgians said no. Uh, and then they just went in anyway, and then when the Belgians started resisting, they pummeled their forts and just killed everybody, and Belgian civilians would resist, and the Germans would commit these horrible war crimes in Belgium. Like, uh, it came to be known by the British press as the Rape of Belgium, and of course it was exaggerated, like it, you know, it's propaganda, but they did some pretty nasty things in Belgium. So just like all of these things, um, just, I definitely think you can make a very strong case that, uh, Germany, you know, is responsible for starting the First World War, if not like unilaterally, like by themselves, you know, you know, but definitely they have a lot of the blame. All right, well, that's going to do it for us here today, uh, where we tackled the issue of who was to blame for the First World War. And uh, if it sounds like I was picking a lot on Germany, well, I was. <laughs> that was the point of this episode. But I want you to know that uh, there are alternate theories. Uh, there are alternate kind of interpretations of history um, where some scholars have speculated that Russia was to blame more so than any other power for the war, or Austria-Hungary, or Serbia. Um, those cases, those arguments do exist, and I would like to get to them. Uh, Germany is just the biggest, seemingly the most popular argument. It's also the oldest. 
Um, because again, like with the Treaty of Versailles, even back in 1919, people were crafting like, yes, this is the story of the war. This is the popular narrative. It was Germany. So it's, it's it, you know, and in fact, it's only really a little bit more in recent times that historians have started to look at uh, kind of other theories. And again, the focus of this episode was Germany, but I'd like to reiterate that there was no one country that was like entirely responsible for the war. It's just some countries were more to blame than others. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. This has been Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Lister mail can be sent to bitesizedhistorypodcast at gmail.com and leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends. Once again, thank you so, so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.